Luke 12, starting at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. And I say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be uh, with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are they than birds? How much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So there's this guy. He's a professional robber. That's what he does. He sees a suit walking down the street. No one else is around. So being always prepared, he whips out his balaclava, pops it on his head, Hides around the corner, he jumps out and he catches the man, grabs him by the scruff of the neck and he says, give me all your money. Taken aback, the man in the suit says, you can't do this. This is an outrage. I am a Commonwealth politician. I'm a member of parliament. I represent the people. And the robber thinks for a split second and he says, well, in that case, give me all my money. 
We have a really unique relationship with money. I think sometimes it can be an invisible or a silent idol that is in our lives that we don't see working. We don't notice that it's there until we go looking. And I'm going to talk about that in a second, but I just want to highlight a couple of things. First of all, the Gospel of Matthew Matthew puts this uh, exchange on the Sermon uh, on the Mount. Uh, And Luke is consistent with that. It tells us there was a large crowd uh, and Jesus had been teaching the crowd and someone calls out from the crowd, hey, Jesus, here's a way you can help me out. Tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Likelihood is that this guy who's called out is someone, a, a brother other than the oldest son. Tradition was in those days uh, when the father died, the eldest son got more of a share of the inheritance than the other brothers. This brother feels cheated. These days, what would he do? He'd go and see a lawyer. But true to form, Jesus doesn't say, here's what you should do. Here's the answer to your solution. Here's how to speak to your brother or here's how to tackle the, uh, the sharing issue, you know? Here's five, five steps towards sharing the inheritance. Jesus goes straight to the heart. He actually is not interested in the man's problem so much. He's interested in what his question just said about his heart. And so he goes straight out to the warning. Did you hear that warning? Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Or if you want to put it another way, as Eugene Peterson does, life is not defined by what you have, even if you have a lot. Even if you have a lot. And then to illustrate his point, Jesus tells this parable about a rich guy who turns out to be a fool. We don't know that at the start. All we know is that he's a rich man, and he's already rich. I don't know if you noticed that. He was already wealthy. And so listen to what happens to him. His fields are abundant. He has an abundant harvest, and he thinks to himself, what am I going to do? I've got no place to store my crops. Oh, dear, what a problem. And then he says, I know, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down, my, tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you've got plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. I want to share with you some observations about the rich fool. And then I want to share some observations about us. And if you're anything like me, you might find yourself running parallel with the rich fool. And that's okay, because that's why Jesus told this parable. It wasn't really about a rich fool. It was about us. Jesus told this parable so that people could listen to it and go, ouch, that says something about my heart. So here's what I think there is to observe. You might think of there's other things to observe. That's okay. Let me show you what I think there is to observe about the rich fool. First of all, He thinks that his stuff is his. 
Listen to his language. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, I'll say to myself, you, me, has plenty of good things laid up for many years. The New Testament doesn't reinforce the concept of ownership. The New Testament tells us about the concept of stewardship. That is that things are given to us for a period of time for us to use and apply, and if we're a follower of Jesus, to use it for that purpose. And then you either pass it on or you give it back to whom, uh, to the person who gave it to you. It's, it's consistent with the notion of a king. We don't have uh, a, re- a real strong sense of, of royal uh, family or, or kingship here in Australia. We're uh, all PC and we have dem- democracy and all those other good things. Um, but the notion of having a king is this. You don't actually own anything. Everything, everything belongs to the king. He, the king allows you to live in that place. The king allows you to have that home. The king allows you to plant your crops and so on. The Bible tells us that everything in the world is God's. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's what the psalm says. And that includes everything. Your money, your time, your skills, your house, your family. Sometimes we get sucked into thinking that I've given my money to Jesus. No, you gave Jesus money to Jesus. Or you gave it back to Jesus. It wasn't actually ours in the first place. That's one thing that the, uh, the rich fool gets sucked in on. Secondly, he forgets to be thankful. He is a wealthy man and he has an abundant crop, bigger than what he expected, bigger than what he was ready for. And instead of being thankful, what does he do? He stresses out. Oh, I've got too much. Big problem. He actually sees his abundance as a problem instead of a blessing. And he does nothing to recognize or express gratitude to God who just blessed his crop. He got this massive windfall and instead of saying, thank you, Lord, he says, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Thirdly, the rich man gets more than he hoped for and then he keeps the excess. Now this is when I start to feel the knife twisting uh, for me. Guys, there is limits to what we can say we need. There's limits to what we need. The rich fool is not looking for an opportunity to share out of his abundance. Instead, he goes looking for a way to have even more. And this is when I think the the guy who's just asked the question in the crowd is probably starting to think, oh, gee, that stings a little. Just like the guy who asked the question, I've just inherited from my deceased father, but I want more, Jesus. Help me to get more. And Jesus said, that's not what this is about. You've just inherited. You've just had a blessing. The rich fool had an amazing windfall and he still wanted more. He wanted to keep it all for himself. Four things to observe. The rich man worries, even in his wealth. Now, I want to, I want to show you this, 
this guy and how amazingly inconsistent he is. First of all, he thinks that his abundance is going to let him have no worries. uh, This is self-managed super kind of mentality. Uh, Build up a nest egg and then take it easy. Eat, drink and be merry. I have a lot of things stored up for many years. I have my future sorted. I will no longer have any worries. But he has already just proven himself wrong. Because what did he do when he planted his crop and he got more than he hoped for? What did he do? He worried. He, as soon as he got more than he, he was planning for, he worried. And so he knows. Well, no, maybe he doesn't know. We can see, I guess, looking from the outside, we can see that this guy has planted crops, he's expecting a harvest that's this big, he got a harvest that's that big, and he got worried about that. Now he's planning storehouse this big so that he won't have worries. His, his wealth actually is the cause of his worries. Proverbs 13 tells us this, a person's riches may ransom their life, but the poor cannot respond to threatening rebukes. Person, person's wealth can actually cause you a lot of worry. Fifth thing that I observe about this rich fool, he has a covetous heart. Now, before I say too much, I'm going to tell you, I think I have a covetous heart. I'm going to confess that to you now. I think I have a covetous heart. And let me tell you why I think that. First of all, I'm going to distinguish three things. Envy, jealousy, Coveting. Envy. We talked about envy when we talked about Joseph. Joseph's brothers envied him. Envy is the resentment of a person who has something that you want. Okay? Envy is a personal thing. You don't envy things, you envy people. Envy is a resentment of people because they've got what you want. You might envy wealthy people, but it's always directed at the person. Jealousy. A strong desire to have what should rightfully be mine. Strong desire to have what should rightfully be mine. So jealousy can be good, jealousy can be bad. Jealousy desires that which should rightfully be mine. God is jealous, uh, he says, for the praise of his people. It belongs to him, it should be his. I get jealous about my wife's time and affection. I feel like that should be mine. When this guy has the opportunity to have more, he wants more. He needs it. Coveting is a longing or a craving for something that comes out of greed and not out of need. I'll say that again. Coveting is a longing or a craving for something that comes from, sorry, which comes out of greed, not out of need. Do you want me to say it again? (laughs) It's greed, not need. That's the bit you've got to get. So he falls into this trap. If I had X, then I will be set. Then I'll be happy. And I've got to tell you, I've said that. I've actually said those words. If we were doing this, or if we got to that point, we'd be fine. Have you ever said that to yourself or to your spouse or to your accountant or something? If I could get to this point, I'll be okay. Do you know what that says to me? I've got a covetous heart. 
I actually want more, and it's not out of need. And that's why Jesus says, hey, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Ultimately, this guy, here's, here's a bombshell, this guy is worshipping his wealth. He has turned it into an idol. He is worshipping his money. Now, you might say, well, pfft, you know, he's not got a gold statue and he's not bowing down to it. No, he's not. But listen to what he's doing. He's turning to it for provision. He's turning to it for comfort. He's turning to it for assurance. He's turning it to it for joy. Be merry. He's turning it, uh, turning to it for his status. He's turning to it for his identity. He's turning to it for his future. This guy is worshipping money. He's going to his wealth for all of the things that actually God wants to provide him. That is why he's a fool. He's not a fool because he's got money. He's a fool because he's worshipping it. And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't say, just, hey, don't do this. He does more than that. He gives that classic redirect. He says, so it is with anyone who continues to lay up and hoard possessions for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus doesn't just say, avoid money. He says, don't forget to be rich towards God. That is where your wealth needs to be. Jesus doesn't say, behave better. He says, worship God. Be rich towards God. Desire him. Want more from him. Want more of him. Turn to him for your provision. Turn to him for your comfort. Turn to him for your assurance. Turn to him for your joy. Turn to him for your status. Turn to him for your identity. Turn to him for your future. Those are the things that God can provide, not an idol. I've been listening to a a series of talks on the Proverbs and uh, one of the things is about idolatry and addictions and the, uh, the reality that comes out of these talks is, hey, idols, they tell you lies. Idols tell you lies. They say, if you have this, you'll feel better. If you have this, you'll be comfortable. If you have this, other things will be all right. It'll be okay. And so you chase those things and the idol tells you lies. When you get them, it's not okay. You're not comfortable. You're not happy. You're not satisfied. Only God can provide those things. So Jesus says, be rich towards God. Well, I don't know about you, but after I read this passage a couple of times, as so so often happens to me when I prepare, I felt like the rich fool. I felt pretty bent out of shape because I know in my heart that actually Jesus wants my heart. He doesn't just want my money. He knows if he's got my heart, he has all of me, my money, my time, my energy, my desires. And I know I can't deny the facts. My actions betray me when someone asks, Andy, where are you turning to for your provision? Andy, where do you go for your comfort, for your assurance? for your joy, for your status, for your identity. Andy, where are you going to plan your future? 
And when I answer those things honestly, I see that I am, I've got an idol in my life. Maybe you do too. I also know that God's in the habit of testing people about these things. And to be honest, I'm bracing myself now. And I made a, I made a really short list uh, just in the Bible of people who got tested. Hey, do you love me more than something else? God said it so many times to people, do you love me more than that? Do you love me more than him? Do you love me more than her? Abraham, do you love me more than your one son? Saul, do you love me more than your pride? David, are you patient enough to let me deliver you the throne? Esther, do you love me more than your life? Daniel, do you love me more than your good reputation? Joseph, are you willing to marry a pregnant teenager? Do you love me enough to do that? Why does God test us like this? Not to guilt us, not to shame us, but to help us see, to open our eyes and help us see the idol that sits in there. Because where your heart is, there your treasure is. And what I'm treasuring will demand my affections, it will guide my choices, it will set my priorities, it will dictate the direction of my life. Whatever it is that I treasure... It's going to have those influences. And that place rightfully belongs to God. God is entitled and he does. God is entitled to take, sorry, to dethrone the things that I've installed in his place. I'm going to say that again. God is entitled to dethrone the things that we have installed in his place. The second thing, the second reason I think that uh, Jesus uh, tests us or that God, God allows us to be tested and, and asked to give up things is because it looks like Jesus. Jesus displayed this very same characteristic, did he not? If, if you want to be like Jesus, then you can be expected to have to give up good things. Do you want me to illustrate this? Jesus, at the right hand of God, in heaven, a place so amazing that your head will explode if you try thinking about it. Jesus, looking down at the people that he loves in a complete mess, dirty, filthy, rotten mess. And he says, you know what? I'll go. I'll go there. I'll give it up. I want them, I love them, I treasure them. And his heart so treasured you and I that he left heaven. He gave up everything. So I've been wrestling with these kinds of questions. Is it really my money? Is it really my stuff? How can I show thanks to God for what I do have? And I know that I have more than I need. What am I doing with my excess? What am I doing with the extra? When you get a tax return that's, you know, $900 instead of the $400 you're thinking about, what do you do with that excess? 
bonus. Now I can get that iPad, TV, whatever. You know? Are you like the rich fool? Oh no, now I have to make another decision. Poor me. Do I have a covetous heart? Do I have a heart that still wants more? Do I find myself saying, if I had, then I will? How might God be testing you to see if you have a covetous heart? Well, Jesus moves on. But he doesn't change topic. He just changes vein. And he seems to use this guy in the crowd. And this, <laughs> if I was this guy in the crowd, I would have slunk away by now, um, being uh, a bit embarrassed about what Jesus has done with my question. Jesus is not finished. He uses it as a launching pad for another lesson. And it's a lesson about getting your priorities straight. And essentially the lesson is this. Don't trust money, trust God. I nearly said that around the wrong way. Don't trust money, trust God. And I, know about, I don't know about you, I know that God can be trusted here. I know that. If you said, can God be trusted? Yes, is my answer, because I'm a good Christian. But if you watch my actions, I don't always live like that. I don't always live like God can be trusted. In fact, I'm very nervous about not having a 100% watertight plant. I get towy. You can ask other people about that, and they'll testify to this. I personally, I get a little bit anxious when my bank balance is low. I get noticeably grumpy if it's overdrawn. Uh, Why? Because I'm trusting in my own ability to provide and not God's ability. I slip back into that space where I have to save myself, I have to provide for myself, I have to be the reassurer, I have to be the comforter, I have to be the source of all those things that God wants to provide for me. And actually, I need to remind myself of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is we can't do it, God can. And that doesn't just apply to your salvation, can I tell you. It applies very much to your salvation, but not just your salvation. We can't do it, God can. And when God can and when God does, then he gets the credit and that is what he deserves. He's jealous for it. He deserves the credit. He deserves to be spoken highly of. That's what it means when we say, let God have the glory. Boy, it's an easy thing to say and it's a really hard thing to do. It's really hard to back off and say, I'm going to let God... Do it so that he can get the credit and people can speak highly of God instead of highly of me. This section of the uh, passage, the do not worry section, we've got it in a little kid's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you haven't got it, if you've got kids under the age of 12, you haven't got the Jesus Storybook Bible, you are missing out. It is fantastic. And in this section of the Jesus Storybook Bible, Jesus says, how ludicrous would it be to see a bird going down the aisle of the supermarket, stacking stuff into his trolley. Do you see that? Everyone in the crowd laughs. Oh, no, 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 you don't see that. And what about flowers? Do you see them in the shops, you know? Not sure if this fits. Do I look all right in this? 
You don't see that. And again, the crowd is, you know, ha, oh, so funny. But Jesus says, that's, if the birds and the flowers are not needing to do that, and we are so much more precious to God than that, why do we worry ourselves about our physical needs? Jesus says, actually, if you're pursuing God, he will take care of those things. I find that so unbelievably profound. If I'm pursuing God, he will take care of those things. Seek first his kingdom and all those things will follow. Let me clear up a couple of other definitions. And I want to distinguish these because I don't want you to think that being concerned about things is wrong or turning your mind to them and saying, what will happen about these things? I don't want you to think that that's wrong. So I want to make a distinction. I'm sorry, this is probably what lawyers do. They get all caught up in words and definitions and things. Concern. I think concern is okay. Let me tell you why. Because I think concern is an expression or a recognition of what matters. If I'm concerned about something, hopefully it's because it matters. It's something that actually matters. Whether or not it's going to be my job to provide, that's a different question. Stress. Boy, that's an issue. That's a, that's a phrase we use a lot. Stress. I'm stressed. How are you? A little stressed. Uh, I'm noticing that you're a bit stressed. Um, Ghost's going to have a weekend away to de-stress. Um, stress is actually an engineering term. For those of you who are inclined that way, stress is when something is being stretched or it's under strain. So is being stressed a sin? No, it's not. It just means you're being stretched. You're under strain. A lot is being asked of you and you're feeling the pressure or the burden or you're being pulled in two directions. That's stress. I've made commitments over here. I've made commitments over there. And there's only 24 hours in my day and I'm feeling the stress. Worry. Worry. Worry causes us to be anxious or troubled, or uneasy. Worry is when I have no peace of mind. I am disturbed. That's worry. It's different to concern. It's different to stress. Stress is just, I'm not sure how this is going to go. Worry is I'm deeply in turmoil. My heart is disturbed. And it's that that Jesus seems to be tackling, and he says, don't get disturbed. Don't get all churned up about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear. Do you not think that God can take care of those things? And he says, don't worry. And so if I don't worry, then what is it that I should do? Jesus doesn't, hasn't told me here, has he? If I stop worrying, what do I replace my worry with? Yeah, he does, actually. He gives the other another redirect and he says this, seek his kingdom. Verse 31, seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do you want to hear the other direction? It's really convicting. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. I really hope to see a big spike in eBay activity <laughs> this afternoon. 
Here's what worry does. First of all, if you think about it, worry is insulting to God. Worry denies God's trustworthiness. It says, I don't trust you, God. I'm going to try this myself. I don't know about you, if if I'm in the middle of doing something and someone comes in alongside and says, hey, hey, let me just do that. I get a little bit offended. I just did, I did that to someone this morning, actually. Uh, and rightly, that person got offended. Hey, I can do this. Don't treat me like a child. Don't treat me like a baby. Secondly, worries, worries fruitless. It's not constructive. It actually doesn't give anything good. Jesus says, why are you worrying about things you can't control? When did you ever see someone extend his life by one hour by worrying? Anyone seen that? I've never. In fact, I think the, probably the uh, medics in the room would say it goes the other way, doesn't it? Worry chews up a whole lot of emotion and causes the body stress and... Uh, no, not stress. Causes the body bad things. Uh, you can tell I'm not a med- medical person. But if we can't deliver the, even the smallest benefit by worrying, then it's actually a fruitless exercise. Thirdly, worry is a faith inhibitor. What do I mean by that? When we worry and we do everything in our power to provide for ourselves, when I churn myself up and I, I make, I'm determined to do something about this for myself, it actually prevents me from turning and seeing God act. It stops me from exercising my faith. I go swimming with my kids on a Saturday morning and I take my uh, almost three-year-old son with his lesson. He can't swim yet. He pretends. And there's one point in time when he stands on the edge of the pool and we sing a little song and he waves his arms and then it's one, two, three and he's got to jump. And everyone's standing along the edge and everyone's jumping to their mum or their dad. And I've got to catch him. Now, hopefully you know me. I would never let my kid sink. I might let him go underwater, but I'm never going to let him sink. I'm never going to let him drown. And he's learned that. He's learned that he can jump and he's going to hit the water before he feels my arms. But he can trust me to look after him. But he does actually have to jump. He doesn't have my hand first. All he's got to do is look me in the eyes and jump. No no floaties, no safety net, no rope, no little ring or whatever. He's just exercising faith. And I've got to tell you, It's actually not faith until he jumps. Before that, it's just my promise. Go, go, mate, I'll catch you. At that point, he has knowledge. When he jumps, he has faith. Fourthly, worry stifles our generosity. When the rich fool started worrying about what he had, he started to plan for his own benefit. Jesus says, don't plan for your own benefit. Sell your possessions. Give it to the poor. 
Provide purses for yourselves that won't wear out, a treasure in heaven that won't be exhausted. Lastly, and most disturbingly, worry speaks about my heart. It betrays where my confidence lies and what I treasure most. It shows up the idol in my life. I find this the most convicting of all, to be honest, because no matter what other people say about me, no matter, no matter what image I try to portray about myself, my actions paint the most accurate picture of my heart. And I can tell you, when I make a list, my worry list, it says things about my heart. It says things about my heart. So I'm going to ask you to do a little exercise now. How are we going? I'm going to ask you to take two minutes. If you've got a pen and you've got one of those little undercover books, then I want you to get your pen and get your little undercover book and I want to write your own worry list. What are you worrying about right now? Last night and this morning, what was chewing up your mental energy? Is there a topic that when I ask you about it, you go, I wish you wouldn't ask me about that. I just don't know what to do. I'm worrying. I want you to write it down. If you haven't got a pen, beg your neighbour, borrow, steal, and then ask forgiveness. If you want to borrow, if you want to borrow a pen, just put your hand up. There's a handful in the basket here. Everyone wants to portray the image of an organised churchgoer. I want you to write down your worry list. And there's a reason I want you to write it down. Because I want, to, I want you to see it in front of you. I want you to see and read the things that are on your worry list. And I'm going to ask you some questions. And I'm not doing this because I'm standing, you know, a foot and a half taller than you and I'm looking down some sort of righteous nose. This platform's here for short people like me. I want to ask you these questions because these are the questions that I've been wrestling with and I've got to tell you, they're they life-changing questions. These are the questions that Jesus was wanting to ask the guy who was in the crowd. This is the questions that Jesus was challenging, challenging his disciples on. Look at your worry list. What part of your life are you saying to God, I don't trust you. I need to do this, not you, God. Where can you step back and ask God to step in? Will you do that? Will you step back, deliberately step back and ask God to step in? Take your hands off the wheel and say, okay, God, please, will you prove yourself? Will you do something in a way that only you can get the credit and so that people will speak highly of you and not of me? 
What opportunity exists for you right now where you can ask God to prove himself trustworthy? I'm sure if I asked you all, you would give the same answer that I give. Is God, is God trustworthy? Yes. Is God asking you to prove it? Is God asking you to say, hey, let me show you that that's true? What opportunity for generosity do you have right now? I promise you, Paul and I were not in cahoots today. I didn't know he was going to come up and give you a financial update. But you might have an opportunity for generosity. Are you having second thoughts about that opportunity? Yeah, look, I could give this, but maybe I'll keep it for a rainy day. Do you need to trust God with your rainy day? Is worry stifling your generosity? Are you wanting to give but not giving because you're worried? And what does your worry list tell you about your heart? Does it reveal an idol, an idol that you've been worshipping? Maybe you didn't realise it was there. Will you join me now in worshipping Jesus instead of that thing so he can dethrone the idol. I think we are we going to sing one more song? Let's do that. Let's worship Jesus by singing. Put him back on the throne.